Welcome to The Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our much-appreciated radio partners, community stations across the country, or on a, a podcast platform. And I am David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And we're your Green Majority hosts. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this week. We're just going to go straight into some climate news headlines here. The hole in the ozone comes back every single year, like the seasons. And uh, what happens is the sun heats up the globe. And that heating up of the globe, or the sun moving around the globe, or whatever happens with the sun in the globe. I'm not a scientist. But uh, the human chemicals. Cumin? Cumin chemicals, the the the, the, spice. the spice cumin. Yeah, it's uh, everybody's cooking curry these days. Yeah, and what happens is that rises into the atmosphere and punctures the ozone. You're really trying to prove that you are not a scientist. And every single year, I am a I am a food scientist, uh. <clears throat> where I work at Quiznos, and uh, it's larger. Is this still a thing? Oh, I don't know. Anyway. Called your bluff. It's okay. <laughs> there's probably one quiz notes out there that still exists. There's got to be at least I'm one. I'm sure quiz there's notes. a quiz notes. And so this hole in the ozone develops annually and then closes every year. And it's not going to go away till 2070 because we, even though we phased out the CFCs or the HFCs or the CFCs or whatever it was back in the day, we're still using them a little bit and they're still coming out. And so it's not going to be gone until 2070. And it's actually much larger this year than it has been for the past 30 years. So that's just a fact. Don't know what to make of it. Doesn't sound it's, good. It's human caused from the chemicals we use. It happens every year, closes every year. So there is still a hole in the ozone and it is larger this year than usual. Right. 75% larger apparently. And a study from One Earth uh, has found that coral reef health, so the ability for coral reefs around the world to support life, has declined by half since, 19, since the 1950s. And that 60% fewer fish are being caught by fishers around these coral reefs uh, than they were in 1950. The Intercept reports that EPA officials, so the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States, this was happening under Trump, still happening under Biden, where EPA officials are pressuring their staff to rate chemicals as less toxic than they actually are. So there's a threshold of toxicity at which they rate, this is uh, no, where they say the chemical is safe, right? If it produces a certain amount of toxins into the environment or the human body, they say that's a negligible amount. They use the word negligible. And the officials and the managers just are wanting their scientists and, and their employees to use the word negligible for various chemicals when in fact the, uh, the scientists are saying they're actually toxic. Right. They're actually bad. But so they're, they're, they're still writing off these chemicals. And our, our beloved Canadian company, Enbridge, Pride and Joy, uh, Line 5, still keeping Line 5 open in Michigan, even though the governor told them to shut it down. So there's a, there's a corporation defying, defying this entire state of Michigan. And now uh, some scientists, these are expert testimony submitted to the Michigan Public Service Commission, these scientists have calculated and they estimate that the Line 5 pipeline that goes through the, a, a tiny little part of the, of the Great Lakes into Sarnia from um, the tar sands 
is uh, going to cause $41 billion in climate damages, they say between 2027 and 2070. I don't know why they chose those dates, but they say $41 billion in climate damages. Now, could you, could you, is, it, is it conceivable that you could spend that money to make up that thing, to make up those damages? Not real. I mean, maybe, I don't know, it's, it's very dubious, but they've decided to calculate in this way anyway. Right. You know, it's not like you can just throw money at the environment, but that's what they've calculated, $41 billion in climate damages. Also Enbridge, the Intercept is reporting that Troy Kirby, this is their, this is Enbridge's man for their corporate security apparatus that's uh, helping to lock down and secure the construction of line three against the protesters in Minnesota. Troy Kirby, who works for Enbridge now, used to work for Exxon and Amazon. So this is just a, an illustration of how these people in corporate security who, 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 who have an entire uh, office, an entire, entire group of employees dedicated to, uh, to specializing in cracking down on dissent. And so here's a man who switches between Exxon, Amazon, Enbridge, you know. And Enbridge also was recently fined $3.3 million for groundwater damage while constructing line three. So line three, they've been, they've been building it very quickly because they're, they're trying to fight the court battles, which actually they've won most of them. And they're trying to get it in before it gets too much pressure from activists or whatever. They're, they've been build, they're building it quickly. They're forcing it through and they've caused groundwater damage that they've now been fined $3 million for, and they might face criminal charges. What does it mean for a whole corporation to face criminal charges? I don't know who's going to be held accountable, whatever. Uh, wealthy nations, uh, moving on from Enbridge, wealthy nations, they pledge $100 billion to poorer countries. Is this every year? Is it, do they do this every year? I don't know. They pledged $100 billion to poor. I think poor that was at last comp. Okay. Like an annual, an annual $100 billion payment. Uh, and they're $75 billion short. So they've paid 25 billion out of the 100 billion so far this year. We have wealthy countries as a whole. In other climate news, a record amount of carbon was released into the atmosphere by wildfires this year. So wildfires release a certain amount of carbon every year. This year is a record amount. The Boston-based nonprofit firm Ceres has estimated that uh, climate change, so this is climate change exacerbated uh, disasters like floods and wildfires and uh, extreme weather events uh, are threatening the balance sheets of big banks. Uh, so the loans that they're giving are even more in jeopardy from these climate exacerbated disasters than they were by the bad mortgage loans they were giving out in 2007. So the implication is that climate change is making these banks' assets actually much more devalued than they're pretending they are, and so it creates a bubble. Um, and finally, China has announced that it's going to stop financing or building coal, any new coal power plants in countries other than China, in, in, in any other country. And that's all I have. The particular phrase that I've heard in regards to that is that it basically ends coal financing worldwide. Not that there's not mm. still some coal financing out there to be found, but that China sort of pulling out is sort of seen as a death nail for people trying to find external places to get coal financing for new coal plants. Mm. And, and so that is really quite big news. Obviously, it is not 
to the point of, of having them stop building new coal plants inside China, but they, there's a timeline for that to be ended as well. But the one I want to talk about a little bit more before throwing to you, Lauren, is actually the run before that in regards to the big banks and their 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 assets being at risk to climate change, because it actually made me think of something I hadn't thought of before. Previously on the show, we've talked about insurance companies and how insurance companies are increasingly refusing to insure houses that are in these these areas that are really dangerous to climate. So it's really hard to get you know houses in, uh, say, some parts of California to be insured from fire. There's a lot of places in New Orleans and Houston where you can't get them insured in flooding because of because they're in floodplains. And this is a concern for the people who live there, obviously, because you know the big concern that I that we have talked on the show previously is that these are houses that could get destroyed. And it would be a way, and, and yet the people who have to live there will be people who can only afford houses there. And it will sort of increase the cycle of allowing the rich people to protect themselves and the poor people to, to deal with the fallout. What I hadn't thought of is all of the banks that had their mortgages tied up in those. And therefore, if you aren't insured, then the person's just going to go bankrupt and they're not going to pay back their mortgage. They don't have enough. There's no way they're going to pay back their mortgage because they're, they're not insured anymore, which leads me to wonder if this is even possible in the future to get mortgages on these houses or what will happen at all. Because like that, to me, that strikes as a very difficult, if, you know, if 10% of bank assets or more are already at risk to climate change and you can't get insurance to the thing that might destroy them to that makes them at risk, there's not really a way to protect the banks to protect themselves at all. And that's going to create quite the cycle, which is concerning to me. But you, Lauren. Well, no, but it's of course concerning, A, because people will like lose their homes and their livelihoods and have to move on mass. But then also it's like, yeah, what is that? What is, what are the, what are the economic implications of that wave of foreclosures? Especially when you then consider that it's like, it's not like nothing good came out of the 2008 recession, but like all of those houses were foreclosed on and then people were able to move into those houses. So like from what I, I don't recall there being a huge housing shortage in 2008, but what will, what this will result in is like people be, people having to foreclose on their homes, people having to leave their homes because A, they can't afford them anymore and B like, the water is lapping at their gates and they have to leave. Where are those people going to go? Like, we're going to have, we know this, we're going to have like a, a, a wave of internal climate migrant mi- migration within most countries and like Canada and the U S are not immune to that. So yeah, I don't know. I, I've, I would love for somebody who has a better handle on like housing market dynamics to come on and be able to sort of like explain and predict for us what these patterns could potentially like play out to be like. Um, The other thing I wanted to touch on briefly was like you said, that announcement out of China last week is potentially like huge, potentially totally game changing. There are obviously still some questions around it. It's unclear to me based on the statements that were made by um, by Chinese leadership when that's coming into effect, is it instantly? Like they just said, we're no longer going to be building any um, coal plants overseas. Do I assume that means instantly? Because um, I guess they went, like they passed up recent opportunities to finance um, overseas coal, coal fire plants 
this past year in 2020. So like that's a, anyway, yeah, the timeline is questionable to me, not questionable in a bad way, but I have questions about it. Um, oh, I guess just also like wanted to indicate that like, it does feel like it's kind of, it's not it like, it's, it's an odd about face. And this isn't specific to China. This is kind of in reference to any large wealth, wealthy, wealthy nation. But when a government kind of decides to make an about face as it pertains to a specific resource that makes them a lot of money, I always like, I have to question. I have to kind of like, it gives me a little bit of pause. I kind of get my back up about it because I wonder like what, what's the deal here? Why are they giving up that? economic asset because I just I'm I'm prone to cynicism that way I guess especially because um there's a couple articles on the New York Times website about this specific announcement that was made out of China and both of them in both of these articles they use the same paragraph where they refer to China as the undisputed king of coal um, and it specifically says last year so this is 2020 I believe it's referring to China built more than three times more new coal power capacity than all other countries in the world combined equal to quote unquote more than one large coal plant per week according to estimates from from a Finnish think tank and that just like that's a lot of money that they've put into coal-fired plants Although, do, do we really believe that this like economic behemoth nation is so ready to give up that entire industry that makes them so much money? Um, and then I guess the other question that did come up that I've seen some people ask is when the government of China says they will no longer support um, or like invest in coal-fired plants overseas, is that just referring to the government of China or is that any and all Chinese companies? So yeah, so, some questions. Overall, an exciting announcement to hear. Um, I feel like we just need to see it parsed out a little bit more and to see how it actually comes into play in, in, in reality. Yeah, for sure. I, I do wonder, this is like a Machiavellian of me thinking of like, if you were China and you wanted to ensure cheap coal for the next little bit for yourself, you would want to lower demand everywhere else. And so supporting other places building new coal plants might not be in your best interest if your hope is to keep the coal for your own plants. But my understanding is that there's enough coal to like burn us down to the ground like six times and that are still in the ground. So I think that's a, a larger problem. But yeah, so before I go to my last thought, I did want to announce that I did do some research and there are two Quiznos in the city of Toronto still. Although one of them is labeled uh, as closed for now, please come back later on Google. So there may only actually be one Quiznos, but you know, I'll keep you updated listeners on that fact. Also, I realize they're called sandwich artists, not sandwich scientists or food scientists. So yeah, that's a shame. Uh, well, love and light to those remaining Quiznos. <laughs> yeah, survive Quiznos, we believe in you. Yeah. Uh, and then and lastly, like, you know, it was fun for your whole Enbridge section to, to pop up and, and, and I'll just use this as a, a way to segue into one of the thing that we often will highlight on the show, which is the way that we as Canadians end up exporting uh, both emissions and also environmental destruction to other nations, even apparently the United States, you know, let's not even pretend, let's not even get into all the different ways we're doing it in across the globe, but the fact that Enbridge itself is, you know, A, refusing to shut down line five, which to me is a, an absolutely kind of 
confusing level of ignoring like if you as a canadian company can ignore the fed the, the, the american government or an american government from doing what they have demanded what does that say well i think that's why it's important to think of uh like economic competition not as between countries but as between a ruling class and a corporate a, a corporate class uh and a financial class that share interests and are not tied to national interests and so it's so it's it's like it's like canada is uh you know inflicting pain on america but it's really more like there's just a a set of international multinational non-patriotic actors who who are just looking to grow their structure protect themselves without re really thinking about countries or individuals locally yeah, I feel like that's an accurate assessment, especially when you consider like the reality that like so often a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever will like like has no qualms essentially defecting from a country once those taxes are raised in that country and then they move themselves and all of their mansions and all of their millions of dollars to whatever other nearby country has lower taxes and like the same with a lot of corporations it's like you see like when corporate taxes went down in what was it ireland i think everybody moved over to ireland like yeah you're right there is no such thing as like loyalty or patriotism amongst billionaires yeah i for me it's still just surprising that the state of michigan can't do anything you know like to me i'm still sort of surprised it's not a re there's not a stronger recourse here you know in the ways that the state of minnesota has managed to get the national guard to protect a pipeline of enbridges and yet the state of Michigan can't seem to do anything to stop this, the, the flowing of this pipeline, which is also Enbridge. Well, they're, they're also being paid by Enbridge, though. The, 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 police, in the police in Minnesota are receiving money from Enbridge. Right. To be security. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but any last thoughts, Lauren? Just my annoyance with, with the wealthy ruling class again. And like, I don't know, this is such a dumb thought, but like, Next time anybody ever tries to tell me that Elon Musk has like really like his concern is climate change, it's like, cool, then like he should be funding anti-pipeline activists and anti-pipeline organizers with his billions of dollars. Like, cool, if that's actually what you care about, throw us some money, man. Help us out. Yeah. But he doesn't care, so he won't throw us any money. We're on our own, friends. Yeah, he's going to space. That's his move. We are back with Eric Bachman of Co2Rail, which this is part two of our interview. Part one can be found in the latter half of episode 780, which is available at our website at greenmajority.ca. And we're going to dive in in a second to the bear questions, but to orient folks who may have missed the first episode, my understanding, and I'll, I'll throw to you, Eric, in half a second, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that Co2Rail is a direct air capture technology that aims to harness the incredible amounts of energy that is wasted by breaking trains. Thank you so much for, for joining us back on the show. And 
Can you give us a bit of an intro? Yeah. First, thanks for having me back on. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed our last conversation and look forward to another one. Cote Rail is a rail-based, multi-gigaton scale, direct air carbon capture system that, like you said, utilizes the uh, tremendous regenerative braking energy uh, generated from stopping or slowing an entire train many times per day. It also has no land-based footprint and no need for energy-hungry fans to move air through the system as it collects its air from the train slipstream. The bow on top of all of that is it can even remove the emissions from the locomotives themselves, which would create the world's first carbon negative mode of transportation. You don't hear that very often, do you? I mean, I've never heard it. So yes. <laughs> and so that's what we're talking about. And I teased at the very end of our last conversation that this one would include a description of what this looks like, because I feel most people probably don't even actually have a really good understanding of what regular director capture might look like, let alone what it looks like to, to strap it onto a train and let alone to have that also, you know, have solar panels on top of it to get powered. So can you paint a picture? What does this look like? Sure. Yeah, I was meaning to get to that last time. The, the features that we needed for a great rail car are almost exactly what exists currently in railroad tank cars. A large chamber that's airtight, able to store liquid CO2 at high pressures, but also has the potential for good aerodynamic flow characteristics. So now imagine that tank car with large air intakes mounted on the top side of the tank. The front part of the rail car is where the, the main equipment is located, such as uh, the compressor and control system. Underneath the car, there are, are boxes mounted for the, the battery array, and a portion of the rear of the car is used as a reservoir to store the harvested CO2 until it can be offloaded. The entire rest of the car is the CO2 collection chamber. This is used to house the uh, DAC sorbent and designed to take the intake air down through the, the media and out again, minus its carbon dioxide. So it's basically, if I can try to see if I under how well I understand this, it is like a big tube on top of a big tank covered in solar panels. Exactly. And the primary way it's powered is the regenerative braking energy from the train, but it also does have solar panels mounted on top, mainly to keep the battery charged during any uh, period of, of downtime. That makes sense. And then the direct air capture happens because there's filters inside the tube that the air flows through as it's going through. Absolutely. Exactly right. Amazing. Great. Okay. So now I've got a sense of this. And so I have a two-part question. The first is how much could an, a single one of these cars, right. how much could it hold before it got full? And then the secondary question is, what does the scale potential look like? That's a great question. The first question that everybody asks, and we're going to need some ramp up time to iron the kinks out, but we believe on a per car basis that we can get to 20 to 30 tons per day. And at scale, meaning that we have these cars deployed around the world, we believe we can get to definitely one gigaton by 2030 and five gigatons by 2050. 
and uh, 10 plus by 2075. So this is a, I have a question that may not be, I'm going to say fair, but it just might be too difficult to actually do in your head right now. So it's just more of a a curiosity question for myself, which is it's hard right now to understand these scales. Like a gigaton is a number that I totally have very little Uh, handling on. And so I know that the largest direct air capture just opened up a couple weeks ago. And so in the future version of, of these cars, how much of the cars would match one of these, what's opened up three weeks ago? Yeah, great question. So I, I think you're talking about the Climeworks plant that just opened in Iceland. And off the top of my head, I think they were at four or 5,000 tons per year capacity at that plant. First of all, let me say that I absolutely support what Climeworks is doing. I think it's a great company and they're doing some really exciting things. And like I said last time, this is bigger than any one company or even any one country. So again, I'm a big Climeworks fan and they're going to be opening plants up elsewhere that are, I know, bigger and better than what they just did in Iceland. But at that capacity, one of our cars at scale would be able to do about twice that per year. Cool. And the goal here is to have multiple cars on the train, on each train. Right. So there's enough energy on on most trains to have multiple cars, especially the trains uh, that run out west. They, in the mountains areas, a lot of people don't know this, but as they're not only do you have to go up the mountain, but you also have to come back down the mountain and coming back down the mountain, they use a, a lot of energy braking for an extended period of time to decelerate the train rather than having to ride the brakes. So especially out in the mountainous areas, we believe in the near, near term, we could have as many as five or six of these cars per train. I hadn't even thought about the fact that this would be even more effective when you're going downhill because of how much yeah. you'd have to stop it from going downhill so quickly. So you mentioned scale, and I think that is ultimately perhaps one of the big concerns around direct air capture is, as we talked about last week on the show, I think we covered one of the big concerns, which was just that it's a distraction from what we have to do because of just how quickly we must decarbonize everything else. And we had a conversation about how we need everything right now. But the second concern is just that even if you accept the possibility is there, the speed at which is necessary, the fact that this, the largest director capture just launched, and it's the equivalent of taking 790 cars off the road for a year. And so the scale that we need to see in this sector overall is huge for it to have a real impact on climate change. And so I'm curious if you see a path for where that is possible, like where this is able to scale up fast enough to really make an impact? I I think so. There's some really, really exciting things happening in many areas of direct air capture. I think some of the most exciting progress has been made in the absorbent media. That's the the filter that will capture the, the CO2. For instance, MIT is developing what's known as electro swing direct air capture media. And I won't get in the, in the technicals about it, but it offers 
not only substantial savings on the energy side, but also substantial time savings on the uh, desorption side. That's where the carbon dioxide is, is released from the filter and then captured. So we're at the point in direct air capture, I think the common terminology would be an inflection point where there's been many years of kind of run-of-the-mill progress and then increased progress and increased progress. I think right now we're approaching a more exponential level of, of progress or an inflection point where let's talk about climbers. You're going to see their 4,000 ton turn into 40,000 ton and then turn in hopefully into 400,000 ton. And the same with us. We just began operations last year and we have made light years of progress already, which is very exciting but also challenges. And we can get into some of those challenges if you want. But to finish out answering your question, yes, I, I do believe director capture can scale. I believe it has to scale. And rail has been growing about 1.5% uh, a year for a long time. Obviously, that's averaged out. But over the last, I think, 15 years, it's grown at about 1.5% that continues you get into uh in 20 20 25 years five gigatons a year that's a lot of co2 removed from the atmosphere for sure so obviously this type of technological rollout is not something that most people ever have to think about or experience really and so and again, no worries if this question is is too hard to to answer. But I'm wondering if you could just walk us through like this next steps. So like you started last year, you're now is it a year or two to a prototype, and then four to something like? I'm just curious what this looks like. Well, the quick answer is a lot of imagination and a lot of banging your head against the wall. You know, you mentioned batteries. That's a huge issue. We we need batteries for our system and. It's both good and bad. There would not be a lithium battery shortage if there wasn't a tremendous demand for renewable sources of, of energy and green transportation. So it's good and bad. It's bad when you're trying to develop a new technology that, that depends on batteries. But that is just a shortage like that is a spawning ground for, for new technologies. You have good days and bad days. The good days are when you find a solution to a problem. The bad days are when you uncover a new problem. And they seem to come at a one-to-one -one ratio, which I guess it could be worse. It could be a one-to-two ratio. But yeah, you just walk through. You just walk through it step-by-step, step, I guess. I mean, yeah, fair. So we got connected to you because in another interview with Alex Havasoli, I asked what was something that she was experiencing that she had heard about in her sector that she was really excited about. And her answer was co2 rail. I'm curious, like from your perspective, what is the thing that you are, you're experiencing that you're seeing out there in the world that you are excited about that you think is like, oh man, this thing is really neat if it works or, oh, I hadn't thought about trying to solve this problem this way, you know, from your own bubble. 
Well, that's a that's a great question. I I have to obviously because I'm in this industry, I have to say that I'm you know most excited about what's being done in in direct air capture, like what Climeworks is doing in in Iceland and even in Canada, what what carbon engineering is is doing in Alberta, very exciting. I think the potential for syngas or synthetic fuels is very exciting and the progress, even at University of Toronto, the solar fuels group, they're run by uh, Professor Ozen, very exciting, using solar energy to synthesize fuels and that kind of blows my mind that that's even possible, but they're doing it. I think this is what everybody's excited about is a, a broader deployment of, of renewable sources of energy, solar and wind. Very exciting. But again, I, what I'm most excited about, what I think is a real bottleneck in all of this from transportation to, to energy to direct air capture, at least our part of direct air capture, is advancements being made in battery technology. Renewables, as you know, as everybody knows, are not as uh, reliable as carbon-heavy sources of energy. With solar, you obviously have night. With wind, sometimes the wind doesn't blow. So we're going to need energy storage to reach the broad deployment that's necessary for decarbonization. And very little ways to get there without tremendous advancements in in battery technology and hopefully battery technology that gives us some choices beyond lithium and cobalt there's obviously some environmental concerns with, with both of those uh, elements unfortunately so hopefully that answered your question it certainly did so, so- Obviously, with any sort of new technology, you will be facing a, a, a series of, of different challenges trying to get rolled out. And you've discussed, you've mentioned a few of them already. I wonder if you can dive in a little deeper to what do you see as the biggest challenges that you face and how do you imagine getting past right. this? Yeah, it's a great question. It's exactly what I spend a good portion of my day trying to solve. And there's a lot of them. I mean, obviously, the, the quick answer is, like any startup, like any new technology, even a disruptive technology, like I believe ours is, is access to capital. That's always the first answer, I'd imagine. Along that line, we, I would like to have a prototype out there testing. It's definitely in process this time next year. And hopefully on the railroad testing, first part of 2023. Beyond that, everything gets worked out in, 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 in testing and, and prove out, we're going to have to scale tremendously to achieve our projections. Approximately 500,000 of, of these rail cars will have to be manufactured over the next 20, 25 years at a rate of about 25,000 per year. It sounds like a lot, but it's, it's absolutely feasible. If you look at the rail car manufacturing sector, just in North America, they turn out something like 50,000 rail cars uh, per year. So yes, they'll have to scale up, but it's not a unreasonable scaling that would 
would be required. And trust me, they'd be happy to scale up by that amount. And plus those are all good, high paying jobs that will really benefit the overall economy on a permanent basis, because these cars will have to be built. If you look at their lifetime of say 20, 25 years, that a portion of the fleet would have to be replaced after that time. I haven't really talked about this much, but part of our concept involves application of solar cells on, on some of the compatible rail cars in a train that would need to start and scale up a year over year. Third, the efficiency of DAC media would have to increase meaning the energy required to capture and then release in that filter media would have to decrease. But there's a lot of great advancements. I mentioned MIT, a lot of great advancements being made, and, and we're pretty confident that's going to happen. Fourth, and, and perhaps most important, and we touched on this a little bit, rail traffic will have to increase year over year from where it, it's at now to approximately 40,000 trains by 2050 and 50,000 trains by 2075 to, to achieve our CO2 drawdown targets. But even that's feasible. Again, rail has been growing, which is a good thing. And given that rail uses approximately 90% less energy than trucks per unit of delivered freight, um, and with our system, it would be the world's only conceivable carbon negative mode of transportation. Every time I say that, I, I get all giggly inside. But uh, yeah, it could be uh, in powerful incentives for shippers to use rail. In fact, if, if just 30% of truck transport was diverted rail, there'd be a 10,000 train per day increase almost immediately. Say, you know, fifth, along those same uh, lines, not only do we need uh, number of trains to increase, but those trains will have to become heavier and faster. And you ask, what does that have to do with anything? A heavier, faster train has more kinetic energy. And since we are, in essence, harvesting the kinetic kinetic energy from a train through regenerative braking, a heavier, faster train will lead to more energy available to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. All those I mentioned, and there's more, but all those I mentioned are enormous challenges, but they're equal or, or greater challenges with all types of DAX deployments. Nobody said it's going to be easy. It's just likely to be necessary. And actually, uh, three of those challenges are shared challenges across all types of, of DAX deployments, uh, massively scaling up unit production capabilities, developing renewable sources of, of input energy, increasing DAX efficiency. Uh, there'll be uh, universal topics of discussion, no matter if you're Rail DAX solution handles wheels like ours or remains terra firmly affixed. So when we were talking off air, you had mentioned the, the set of auxiliary benefits that exist outside of this. Obviously, the main thing yeah. here is removing carbon from the atmosphere, but there's a bunch of other stuff that this also does. So perhaps you can spend a bit of time just letting us know the other 
just fun benefits that exist to using a train-based yeah. way to suck carbon out of the air? Yeah, great question. This is one of the very few projects uh, I've worked on in my career where, you know, usually when you solve one problem, another problem pops up and hopefully the problem you solved is bigger than the problem that you unsolved. But this has, I hate to use the old tired phrase of synergy, but this has a lot of synergies that uh, are pretty exciting. So besides the energy and the cost advantages, these auxiliary benefits are, are really exciting. Of the challenges I just talked about, four of those are, are related to rail, but solving for them benefits far more than just rail or even carbon capture. To begin with, rail is, a, like I said, a very efficient mode of, of both passenger freight transport and in increased rail traffic means less truck traffic less traffic congestion, higher workforce productivity. It would take you less time to get to the office. So you'll be more productive. And likewise, you have a higher quality of life, fewer you know, highway accidents and far fewer corresponding emissions, not only truck, but also on the auto side, because it, rather than millions of people sitting in, in impenetrable traffic every day, idling their engines. You, you can count on a, a quicker commute and, and far less emissions. So again, by solving for how do we get there? How do we get to 10 plus gigatons, which is where we need to be reduced, you know, rail traffic, I'm sorry, increase rail traffic and reduce automobile traffic. Another example would be Increasing the regenerative braking output on trains will mean more use of, of automated train braking systems, and that will lead to safer trains, fewer accidents and, and derailments. And we spoke about faster and heavier trains, but that also means more energy to remove carbon, but also will require increased uh, investment in rail infrastructure and more efficient transportation networks and uh, hopefully inc increased rail utilization on the both the passenger side and the freight side and all that will still lead to less emissions so everything that we need to scale up i, I think benefits the public and also benefits the environment because what we need to scale up to reduce carbon dioxide requires a reduction in, in carbon dioxide by increased utilization of, uh, of rail. It's, it's pretty, pretty exciting. Awesome. And so second, last question, the last question is going to be the very easy one, which is just how folks can stay uh, up to date your work. But this question a little more involved, but does have a bit of a time-based element to it which is say you've convinced someone now and they want to convince somebody else that, that this is a good idea or that there are serious Fair. benefits here and they've only got two minutes. How do they do it? Wow. Two minutes. Well, let me, uh, let me read something that was recently written by somebody there at university of Toronto. I mentioned before professor Jeffrey Ozen. He's somebody I consider to be one of the all time heroes in, in sustainable development, decarbonization, carbon capture. And he's been a real champion of ours and very much appreciated and an in indispensable resource as well. 
he wrote this about about our system and i quote the investment will be enormous with any dax solution but if in developing one we can not only remove carbon dioxide from the air at the gigaton scale but also take advantage of a currently untapped source of clean energy save upwards of 30 billion per gigaton in direct costs forego permanent adulterations to our landscapes and allocating a quarter of our global energy capacity to DAX, improve critical national infrastructure, transportation safety, rail utilization, speed and efficiency, reduce traffic congestion, accidents and highway fatalities, increase workforce productivity and overall quality of life, create legions of skilled, high-paying jobs on a permanent basis over the next decades, build legislative, popular, and corporate support of climate change mitigation and carbon removal programs, and finally, drastically reduce rail, truck, air, and even auto-related emissions in a myriad of meaningful ways. The choice becomes quite simply when, not if. Koto Rail just might help get the current bleak picture of climate change back on track into a future, brighter one of climate change back. Wow. I couldn't add anything to that if I tried. And uh, uh, I mean, he's got such a good pun there. Back on track. How could you go wrong? Right? It's, climate I'm, change I'm... back. We actually made that our corporate motto after I saw that. Awesome. So if folks want to stay involved, as you mentioned, this is a fast growing and I'm sure it'll be a consistently changing environment, especially if you're hoping to get a, a prototype out next next year. How can folks stay involved in, or stay connected to, to your work? Sure. Yeah. Much more information is available on our website. That's um, uh, www.co2rail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at Co2Rail. And our email, if anybody would like to send us a, a message or has an idea or anything, as uh, admin at co2rail.com. Another thing is just launched a portal on our website where you can offset your uh, carbon footprint and support our efforts. And a pretty neat feature if anybody would like to, to help us out. Again, that's uh, co2rail.com and just... Uh, uh, click on the, I think it's the carbon footprint tab, something like that. But anyway, thanks for having me on again. And it's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for, for being here as always. Uh, this has been part two of our interview with Eric Bachman of Co2Rail, the principal and chief technical officer. Thank you so much for being here. And again, if anyone has any questions for Eric and they want to shoot them to us, I will happily relay them that way as well. You, if you, if that's easier for y'all. Thank you so much, Eric, and have a wonderful day. Thank you very much.